As I was saying, I just moved and I finally got rid of my CDs. Oh, yeah. That hurt. Yeah, we're on the verge of ripping all our DVDs. That's our yeah. next step. It, th- those ones, I mean, it, it, I guess it did hurt. It, it hurt just because of all the, the, the years it took to, to curate them. But at the same yeah. point, at the same time, um, they're just really ugly, useless yeah. things. And the economists call it the sunk cost fallacy. Just because it costs you a lot of money doesn't mean it's actually worth anything. Well, I, I think that's I, I think that's fair, but I, I don't know that it was even the money so much as as the pursuit. Uh, you know, like right. Of, I mean, just because it costs you a lot, yeah, doesn't mean it's worth anything. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, especially when all of those things I have digitally replicated, but yeah, um, a lot of those, a lot of those are there are a lot of amoeba trips for me. Yeah. Are a lot of crate digging for me. Are a you know a. a kind of an artifact from a time before you can do stuff like you can lay them all out on the living room in a grid and take photos and remind yourself and then get rid of them yeah i guess i guess that's i was gonna say that sounds ridiculous but that's about about as ridiculous as having them them up in my apartment and never actually listening to them yeah i mean if you ever want to show your grandkids what it looked like (laughs) in the age when music was physical yeah you can you know this is what grandpa used to do yeah and back in the old days and no i didn't hold on to them I was, you know, I was also going to say I, that I don't really ever go back and, and look at digital photos either. But we we have this, I don't know. There, there's just something built into us this idea that at some point we're going to want that. Well, and for me, I, all my photos are CC licensed and they're up on Flickr and they yeah. get re- reused all the time by bloggers because they're all freely reusable. And so I I look at my photos by looking every morning to see what's been linked to. And every day, five or six photos out of my life have been someone else, part of someone else's blog because they did a story about San Diego and they used a photo I took of San Diego. Yeah. And so they're, that's how I revisit my photos. That's interesting. Are they uh, the same goes for your like your family photos? No, not so much. But okay. those we go through as a family yeah. when we're remembering a trip or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, th- th- this came up because you said you're, you're, you're moving back to the States, potentially moving back to the States? Yeah. Th- I mean, it's been in our cards for a few years and it's looking more likely now. Yeah. I f- I feel like the last time I, I, I spoke to you, like actually met, met you in person, we've talked online as people yeah. as people do these days. Uh, I, I I think you were kind of in the UK for was it I don't want to say political reasons, but you were sort of unhappy with the states at the well, time. Well, so I moved over. I was I was working for Electronic Frontier Foundation in San Francisco, yeah. and at the time I opted not to renew my visa because as a Canadian. Without a visa, if I traveled into the U.S., they didn't fingerprint me. But if I had a visa, I got fingerprinted. Hmm. Being fingerprinted is not a thing that friends do to friends. Yeah. And so uh, at the time, a bunch of European work had just opened up with EFF. Uh-huh. And I moved over to be the European director. So, 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 wait, so the problem is, um, I mean, are, are your fingerprints on file somewhere as far as you know? Yeah, no, I've been... I mean, since then, that that ship has sailed now. They just fingerprint everybody who comes to the country now. It's really terrible. Yeah. Whether or not you have a visa. So I've been fingerprinted by your government hundreds of times now. Uh, It's really... It doesn't get less humiliating. Yeah. Yeah. Are are you... Do do you fantasize about getting off the grid? Is that... that, No, not at all. I fantasize because I I think that... um, well, first of all, privacy is a team sport, so yeah. being off the grid only works to the extent that the only people I communicate with are also off the grid. Yeah. But second of all, the, the, my concern about privacy is not just privacy for me. Mm. I'm relatively privileged in that I'm kind of white and cis and hat and male, um, but the, there are people I love and people in my life for whom 
because of no fault of their own, there are things that they would like to be private about, that they'd like to control who knows them, their health status or their gender orientation yeah. or their ethnic background or whatever. And I feel like if the only people who have privacy are the people who um, have something to hide, then it'll then those mm. people will just be more compromised because yeah. having privacy will be will be a perfect proxy for being someone who's already vulnerable, uh, somebody who already lucked out of the privilege lottery. Yeah. And so I'm far more interested in resolving privacy issues on a broader basis for wider society than I am in just making sure that I have some privacy. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're also a very public person, and you've, yeah. you've made a decision to, to That's get right. yourself out That's there. That's also very true. You know, I'm, I, so Randall Moreau's got this new book out, and um, I'm doing some publicity with him in London. I'm going to interview him on stage. And the people running it sent me an email and said, by the way, we're not videoing it, And uh, by Randall's request. And I saw Randy yesterday, uh, and I said, what's the deal with the video? And he said, I'm just not a super public person. I just kind of don't want a lot of videos of me. I'm kind of a recluse. And it's true. He's kind of a recluse. Yeah. He doesn't venture out into public very often. And, you know, by the time I was selling fiction regularly, I was also a spokesperson for a civil rights group and doing tons of public appearances. And so I've been a fairly public person yeah. for my entire career. And Randy, his public face is stick figures. Yeah. I, there, there's just a sort of there's this understanding society, though, that once you put a thing out there then you're sort of you're signing that contract you're, you're signing away some of your your anonymity once you have a wikipedia page yeah i don't know i mean i think that i mean we get now into the questions of things like um the theft of uh digital nudes of of yeah. uh, famous people yeah. recently um i mean i think that when you do things in public that mm -hmm. those things by definition aren't secret yeah uh i am not one of those people who feels like if you take a picture of a crowd that everyone in the crowd has a right to prevent you from publishing it or to insist that their likeness be blurred. Going I, out in public is doing something in public. Yeah. I mean, there's a line between that and videoing everyone all the time and, mm -hmm. and tagging them with their faces and whatnot. But I think that, for example, yesterday I took a photo of the uh, costume is not consent photo uh, sign down there. And incidentally, in the background are, are sprinkling of people. They're not looming over the image their faces aren't super visible although you could probably make them out and identify them yeah. if you wanted to they're not tagged in any way but someone wrote to me and said I feel like you should have masked those people out mm. because being present at Comic Con is not consent either and I'm not there well uh, yeah I mean that, that's even uh, I, I feel like you're, you're crossing even another threshold and, and I don't know. I mean, this, uh, it's it's a world that's never really appealed to me. Even when I was a thirteen year old, reading you know a lot of a lot of like like Dragon Ball books, uh -huh. um, actually going out in costume was was never a thing that I think even really occurred. Oh, to these me. weren't even people in okay. costume. These were just people attending Comic Con, and the the view was that being in public is not a license to have your image yeah. stored and reproduced. And I think that um, that has not ever really been part of our social contract. Yeah. Actually, if you read the. Um, uh, Lawrence Lessig's book Free Culture the early history of the brownie camera which was the first mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of human reusable yeah. camera non-professional camera turned on some of these publicity right questions and I think that we now have this very rich evidentiary record about whether it's better for society to let people control all uses of their image when they're in public or better to allow the public to document their lives 
and I, it feels like to me like it's pretty clear that whatever harms arose out of the incidental capture of people's likeness when they were in public places uh, has been trumped so many times over mm-hmm. by the public value we have of our record of our past created by amateur photographers taking pictures of their lives. So, so what, what, I'm actually not familiar with the, the, the costume is, is not the sand idea, and I thought that you were saying that, that it wasn't necessarily a, a, a chance to photograph people. Well, no, so costuming is not consent. It's really about sexual harassment, okay. although sexual harassment sometimes fades over into photography, especially when it's um, kind of yeah, there's stuff a lot that of hinges on obscure photography or, you know, trying sure. to take pictures down women's Voyeuristic, cleavage. yeah. Uh, but this person's point was... If you believe that people have the right to control their physical proximity mm. and you believe that people have the right not to have exploitative photos taken of them, then surely that, by logical extension, people just have the right not to have their likenesses reproduced when they're in public. Yeah. And I'm not there. I, I, I think that there probably are fact, very fact-specific cases where that makes sense. I think that, for example, um, photographing people who are in non-newsworthy extremists, like... I think it's, for example, I think you'd be a creep if you happened upon someone express, experiencing a moment of private grief mm-hmm. and you took their photo for the exploitative value of, yeah. of it. There's a fine line because where does the napalm, Vietnam napalm girl fit in that? But You're talking about good taste and judgment versus yeah. actual legal. And I also believe that we have, that, that there are normative questions that I feel very strongly about that I don't think should be law. Like, I think plagiarism is creepy. I don't think that we should have a law that says if you claim credit for something that is not in copyright but doesn't belong to you. Like, claiming to write Shakespeare shouldn't yeah. be a crime. It should just be jerky. <laughs> and I think that, like, they're, they're, that we can have a discussion about whether things are normatively unacceptable yeah. without having a discussion about whether you should go to jail or be fined for violating those norms. You use Shakespeare as an example just because it's a sort of a, a well-known thing. I mean, that's, that's not it's a blanket copyright. Domain. Okay. Right? So... Plagiarism is as a question that's totally separate from copyright infringement. Yeah. They often get conflated, mm-hmm. but you can plagiarize without violating copyright, either by plagiarizing in a way that's fair use or by um, plagiarizing works that are in the public domain. And it's still a jerky thing to do. Um, and uh, I don't think that we should expand copyright law or some other legal doctrine yeah. to, to cover plagiarism that doesn't contain an underlying infringement. I just think that normatively, we should describe people who plagiarize as jerks, right? Like, same with, um, I don't know, being rude to people who, who uh, uh, cut you off in traffic and, mm. you know, saying something nasty to them. I don't think we need a law. Like, in the UK, yeah. we tried it. We, we, we passed a law that giving gross offense was uh, illegal, causing distress, giving gross offense and causing distress was illegal. And that doctrine's largely been struck down by the courts because it was it was mostly used because access to those kinds of uh, legal recourse is usually a reflection of existing power relationships. So mostly, what it did was allow powerful people to punish powerless people even more. So there was the most infamous case was um, a cop who had a protester arrested because the protester said he thought the cop's horse looked gay, and you know the the horse couldn't feel distress yeah. right emotional distress over uh, whether or not you think being uh, being accused of being gay horse. is yeah. or isn't um, yeah. a, a slur the horse was incapable of feeling distress yeah. but the existence of that doctrine gave the police a colorable reason 
to take that man away, right? So it ultimately ends up chilling speech. Um, I think that they're like, you know, this shades over into questions about um, about things like harassment, where I think normatively it's it's great for spaces like Comic Con to pass strong anti-harassment mm-hmm. rules and to enforce them thoroughly. Yeah. I don't think that the law needs to require them to yeah. have anti-harassment rules. I think that normatively, when people like John Scalzi say, I won't appear at Comic-Con unless it has a, uh, an anti-harassment uh, uh, policy that it enforces, um, that that acts as a way to, to uh, bend Comic-Con's policies and that we can collectively boycott it, we can... We can say bad things about it. We don't need a law yeah. that says that the, that your normative questions need to be determined um, uh, legally. And where the the line for that for me appears is in is in where harassment becomes discrimination. And I'm in favor of anti discrimination laws. But I think that like being able to to talk about normative questions without immediately having people say, "Are you saying it should be against the law for someone to be a jerk?" It's really important that that not be allowed to shut down discussions of normative questions. I think normative questions are the most important questions we have. I think that the law is so inaccessible to most of us because law, the you know, usually yeah. legal victory belongs to the people who yeah. can afford lawyers. Yeah. That normative questions are really where we want all the, the the stuff where the rubber meets the road to happen. All the daily, all of our daily interactions should be governed normatively, not legally. It, it's, it's, you, you start to get into really interesting territory, though, when you, 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 you start to bring the economics of something into it, when, it's, mm-hmm. when it ends up being um, this idea of kind of letting capitalism take hold. So I, I, I think in a place like Comic-Con, if we're boycotting it, if um, prominent people decide that they're not going mm-hmm. to appear because of something, isn't that sort of turning it over to capitalism? So I'm not talking about cap- I'm not talking about markets entirely here. I'm talking about norms. So yeah. Lessig talks about four forces that regulate code, law, norms, and, and markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think your only recourse should be boycotts. Like for example, I believe in the right of trade unionists to to march and to uh, withdraw their labor and to form unions without interference from management, mm-hmm. which are um, which transcend market forces. I don't think that the only remedy for people who believe that that uh, companies have unduly exploitative labor practices are to ask the public to, to not buy those goods. I think that we, we should have regulatory intervention and labor activism, but I think that there are, there are other instances that are more like normative questions that are not discriminatory, but are normative, right? Like you just want to regulate the behavior of people in an event um, to conform to a set of norms yeah. that are um, welcoming and inclusive that I, w- I wouldn't want the law necessarily t- to, to reflect that only because I think that it's far more likely that rich, powerful people will use that law to shut down people who already lack power. And I think norms are a much better way of doing it. Like, for example, I think um, Orson Scott Card is a creep. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that he was going to write comics kind of sucked. Uh, I don't think that the law should say publishers of comics can't hire creeps. Yeah. Right? And I don't think that the only recourse should be boycotts. But I don't think it was an entirely market-oriented decision that caused uh, the comics company to withdraw Card's contribution to a long-running superhero comic. I think it was also the normative question of not wanting to be jerks. And there is an element to which, there's an extent to which that's a market thing, but I reject the idea that you can express all of this just in market terms where they totted up the expected losses from being perceived as jerks and the expected gains of selling comics with Orson Scott Card's name on it you know, had the accountants draw up the sheet 
and, and did it. I think there was an element of looking into their souls, too. Yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of bottom line. I mean, especially, like, when, when we're dealing with, you know, the NFL is a big thing over here. Right. I'm sure you're, you're, you're hearing about that a bit over there as I well. I mean, I think that the right, the, one of the ways we can address normative problems with the NFL is to withdraw their antitrust yeah. protection. Yeah. I think that the NFL, the reason the NFL gets to do what they do is they, they we pay enjoy a legal exemption, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, yeah, not, not only the, the tax issues yeah. and so on, the tax credits, although, again, I think that's a perfectly valid thing for a city to say that your tax credits, this gift, the boon of the public, yeah. uh, has to reflect a quid pro quo for the public interest. I'd be more interested in them never, ever giving them tax credits, though. Um, but I think that we've given them, like on a federal basis, this antitrust exemption and to say to them that you've been given this antitrust exemption on the grounds that you do something public in, in the public interest, so we're going to apply a public interest test to your ongoing mm-hmm. uh, enjoyment of that antitrust exemption, that would be, uh, I think, a good legal remedy, but it, but only because they are already a creature of regulation. Let, let me, because you, you, you keep using the, the, the word normative, and I'm getting a little, a little tripped up on that because... Um, I don't know. It, it, it seems to imply this sort of, you know, I guess what what's acceptable in 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 the group, and and does that uh, does does that sort of take people out who are kind of on the fringes in some way? If it's what the the, the larger the larger group accepts as being the norm. Well, that's a, I mean, that's an excellent question. I was recently talking with um, who was it? Uh, Might have been Shauna McGuire at the Worldcon, and uh, and she said. There are people in my... No, it wasn't Shauna McGuire. I can't remember who it was. No, it was maybe, maybe Mary Robinette Kowal. And she said that there are people in my circle who worry about charisma privilege and the fact that people who are well-liked and considered not to be jerks can sometimes cross a line that would be jerky for someone else. Yeah. And um, yeah. shouldn't people who are nice uh, check their privilege and... Not do they're things ni- that nice people privilege? who are already, who are who are thought of as yeah. being slightly jerky, couldn't get away with, uh, and I think that's dumb. Uh, but I think that's a I don't again I don't think that like we need a court to figure that out. I think that's a thing where we can argue about it. Well, that's you know that's that's an interesting that's the interesting idea of, of, of context. I was having this conversation with somebody recently where uh, I, I can't even remember what we were talking about I, I i think it came down you know what it came, you know what it was it was um uh did you see the sun kill moon song that came out um yeah. you, are you familiar with the band it's uh Only red house painters yeah um he, he he had a song he had a song uh there's another band called war on drugs they were playing at a show he's a really sort of soft-spoken acoustic indie guitar guy and this other band is a full-on rock band and they sort of drowned it out and he was upset about it he went on a public tirade it was kind of funny as public tirade and then he came out with a song called uh war on drugs can suck my cock right and um it was one of those things where i i immediately you know there were these conversations about sexual violence and and you know these these words that he was using but um and maybe this is on me a little bit but i was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because of context because of what i know about him as a songwriter in the same way that like you know if if Louis C.K. made a joke about something controversial versus Dane Cook making a joke about something controversial, sure. we would get somebody the benefit of the doubt. So I think that's a great example of a normative question, and the counterexample would be the legal regime in the U.K., where the libel chill has been so intense that people really worry about 
uh, speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, we created laws that allow people who've been given offense to seek legal recourse, and because that legal recourse is almost the exclusive purview of rich, powerful people, it has really harmed the ability of people to do things like, for example, I, um, I published a video yesterday uh, that was re- secretly recorded by a man who leaflets at shows for psychics saying that are these very mild leaflets that just say, if you're here because you want to, you're desperate to make contact with a, a dead loved one, I just want you to think about whether or not you might be exploited. And here are some of the ways yeah. that psychics, so-called psychics, trick their audiences. And the woman who he's, who he's been um, picketing, that he's leafleting, first of all, her, her husband and her son told him that they were gonna told this guy that they're gonna have him killed and were just really awful to him <laughs> but they also had a lawyer threaten to sue them uh, for 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 causing her offense and distress and so on and I think that like I'm not sure that I think it should be illegal to pretend to be a psychic and I, I don't think psychics are real so I think everybody who claims to be a psychic either is kidding themselves or kidding everyone mm-hmm. Um and I'm not sure that I, that I think it should be illegal or not illegal, but the one thing I'm really sure of is the proper realm to have the debate about whether or not someone is or isn't a psychic is not a courtroom, right? Unless it's a, unless it's a question about, like, a fraud where someone's yeah. used alleged psychic powers to try and take money directly from people. I just don't... I think that, like, you, you shouldn't be allowed to sue people who hand out or use even legal threats. Like, I think that there should be... Um, that it should be baritry, which is a, mm-hmm. an offense that happens when a lawyer threatens a case that they know has no grounds in order to chill speech. I think it should be baritry to threaten to sue someone for arguing that someone who claims to be a psychic isn't. I will say, though, I think that would be a, a fun court case in the way that we don't have fun court cases anymore to actually watch somebody's would, psychic power it, go it, on it trial. Would be a lovely yeah. thing, except that the chances are, given that she's a very rich media person yeah. and he's a guy who does this in his spare time, that they would that they they would have to at their disposal. I don't know if they would do this or not, but at their disposal would be tools like seeking continuances mm-hmm. and doing very expensive discovery processes that could, in theory, bankrupt him long before there was ever an argument heard. And you know, in many places in the U.S., they have these strategic litigation against public participation slap laws that allow. Um, uh, people who've been threatened with legal action to suppress critical speech to very early in the court process um, enter uh, seek, a, seek a court ruling that the whole case turns on the suppression of speech and if it does to shut down the whole proceeding and to seek costs uh, although not always all their costs from, uh, from the people who sued them so for example we um, uh, we published critical material about a company called Magic Jack that do these uh, oh yeah these TV yeah, yeah, ads yeah. for uh, they they it's like uh, a Skypey sort yeah of a little voice over IP yeah. dongle that you stick yeah. in your computer and their terms of service said terrible things like it said they were allowed to listen to your conversations <laughs> to place targeted ads and we published this and they threatened to sue us and we told them that they would have to sue us if they wanted us to not publish publishing this. their terms of service yeah and criticizing them yeah. And eventually, we went through a full slap procedure, which cost us sixty thousand dollars, fifty-five thousand of which we recouped. The other five thousand, you know, between our deductible and our insurance yeah. company, was paid off. And um, only because of the slap stuff, we were able to dispense with this with a mere sixty thousand dollars expense. And 
had we gone with that, in the absence of a slap suit, if, if they'd sued us in a jurisdiction where there, um, where there was no slap law, it could have run to the millions, and we would have just really had to settle. And one of the things that this woman, this woman psychic's family says to this guy whom they're trying to intimidate is, um, we got a huge cash settlement off a newspaper for criticizing her, and we could do the same to you. Yeah. Well, you know, and th- this also comes down to jerkiness, right? I mean, you know, th- th- this is the question of if somebody's pretending to be a psychic, uh, are they legitimately doing somebody harm? I mean, you know, it, 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 it's a similar question to uh, to religion. You know, is, is religion as a concept doing people harm? If it's giving, if you're giving somebody hope, if yeah. you're you know, if, if, if somebody feels like they're getting in touch with a loved one and they, they get that closure, is that necessarily a bad thing? So I guess it depends on, I think that's a, that is a perfect normative decision. So yeah. I don't, I have strong opinions about that, but I have even stronger opinions about whether the law should say anything about that, mm-hmm. right? So my personal belief is that um, on balance, alleged psychics do more harm than good, but my much more strongly held conviction is that in the absence of very specifically fraudulent behavior, that people should be allowed to pretend or, or believe that they yeah. are psychics. Do you, is, uh, how much of this, this seems like, like everything I know about you, this seems like these, these sort of dialogues that are constantly going through your head at all times when you consider just about everything. I mean, you know, when you and your wife go to the store, are you having this very kind of active... We, we do sometimes. Well, yeah. and I think that living in the... So... so this kind of ties back into young adult fiction. Someone asked me about about what it is about young adults and fights about justice. Yeah. And what I think happens to our moral sense. Oh my goodness, that's loud. That's rock and roll. I'm going to move the mic a little yeah. closer to my mouth here. So I think that all of us have strongly held moral views, mm-hmm. and that we, as an, as as animals, our sensory apparatus is better at detecting relative differences than absolute differences and that when we make a compromise we have we, our new norm is arrived at against which we measure the next compromise yeah and so when you start off and you make your and co- life has to proceed within the realm of compromise sure. there's no purity yeah um, and so when you make your first compromise your next compromise tends to be a compromise to your already compromised it gets principles. easier as you go on that's right yeah. well or not it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get easier but if I'd asked you to take that second compromise the first time around, you'd have said, no, that's a bridge too far. Yeah. Having made the first compromise, it's hard to understand why that second compromise isn't acceptable. Mm-hmm. And that this proceeds inch by inch down a slippery slope so that by the time you reach a certain age, your normal level of acceptable compromise is so far away from what objectively, if you looked at what you really thought was right, what you'd be willing to do, and you have this horrible cognitive dissonance because by your own lights, you've done so many unacceptable things so many times for so long. And the grocery store is a great place to have that discussion. (laughs) I mean, the grocery store is full of questions about climate change and labor and pesticides (laughs) and woo-woo health stuff like if you didn't call your friends about their, you know, dumb ideas about organic this or, or, or um, you know, macrobiotic that, uh, and, you know, if you think the food tastes okay, but you think the people who sell it are kind of weasels who undermine the public understanding of science with crazy bad ideas that make it harder for us to have real discussions about public health, which is, in fact, 
this burning issue that that really really affects the lives of everyone you know and love and there you know people who are sick and poorly because public health issues haven't been well addressed in policy circles like that is like an actual thing that happens when you go to when you when you self check out a plastic tub full of blueberries from Chile, right? I, like I just had this like vision of the two of you just standing in an aisle. No, so I mean, we don't have that all the time, yeah. but we do have that discussion, right? Because it's a discussion that yeah. is an important one to have, if only to remind yourself of how far you've gone from your principle. Like, I don't believe that everybody should be pure. I think the danger of compromise is not the compromise itself; it's that you, you're, the cognitive dissonance means that you. Um, cease to believe in the principle like you should know that you've compromised and you shouldn't kid yourself that you're not compromising you should understand that you live in the real world and that you're making these compromises and the compromises have to be made but you shouldn't tell yourself that it's just not that bad you should say to yourself i'm doing it i know i'm doing it in a perfect world i wouldn't be doing it you shouldn't just say well this is i guess it's not not that big a deal here's why i'm not a great person it is a big deal well no you're still a great person (laughs) okay but the thing that makes you a great person is that you still believe in the principle and still given the opportunity will do what you can to make that principle real. The problem is that when you allow yourself to think that the principle doesn't matter anymore, then you cease to be aware and alive to the possibility to make the principle Having real. Having the belief and not necessarily always acting on it is enough? Yeah, because because you should act on the belief when there's the, yeah. when there's the chance to make a change. But if you cease to even believe in the necessity for change mm. because you become so inured to living within the realm of compromise, then change never occurs. That's it exactly. I mean, it's 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 comp- It's not just compromise, though. It's compromise. You know, when 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 you get to a certain age, it's compromise coupled with um, comfort. With, with yeah. being comfort, you know, like I I have this you know, I have this internal monologue every time I, I turn an air conditioner on in my apartment right. in August, and then and then just kind of getting tired. I mean, it 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 does wear on you to constantly have that internal monologue right sure it does and that's why i think that so that's why i think that the cognitive dissonance is the worst way to handle this mm. right because i think lurking in cognitive dissonance is the knowledge that you're being hypocritical and i think that there is a way to be idealistic without being hypocritical while still making compromises which is to say i believe that in a perfect world we shouldn't have to make this compromise i'm making this compromise knowing i'm making it and I am still going to work for a world where this compromise isn't necessary yeah. while living within the reality that this compromise is one of the things that I have to make. That I'm going to choose my battles, but I'm not going to pretend that the battle doesn't matter just because I chose not to yeah. fight it today. And that's, I think that emotionally, that's a lot healthier than being someone who's, who, like, I think that it, that doesn't lead to cynicism mm. in the way that, that allowing yourself to just kid yourself that the compromise doesn't matter does lead to cynicism. I... On this idea of kind of getting tired fighting the, the, the fight over again, I, I wanted to. This actually gets back to sure. the book because um, I was I was reading I was just reading the intro. I just I, I picked this yeah. up because uh, I guess it's actually debuting at the show right now. Um, you you talk a lot about online organizing. Um, you know uh, how how it, how how it, how it gets people together. How it uh, it's a, you know good opportunity to sort of cold voices together. And I've been thinking a lot about this from the standpoint of a. Spe- it seems like. Especially over the past, you know, two months or so, uh, that we've been on a very consistent outrage bender over Twitter. That everybody, you know, it, it, that that every day I wake up and then it's an, you know, it's it's sort of a, it's another thing that that mm-hmm. everybody's kind of come together and 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 
everybody's upset about. And, and in every single, or maybe every single one, or at least the vast majority of these instances, I, I, I totally understand. I totally, I, I, you know, I totally empathize with where, where people are coming from. Um, but I wonder how, especially with, you know, especially with things like Twitter, how sustainable the outright rage machine is going to be in the long run. So I, I guess uh, I believe that I don't believe in a, like a static world. So I think that whatever, if there are Twitter outrages that actually get something done, which I think happens, sure. like I think um, uh, you know the the uh, uh, SOPA stuff yeah. and and uh, net neutrality. Yeah. Uh, uh, there have been uh, I think the stuff that happened in Turkey with Gezi and Twitter and the corruption questions. All of those things have things been... Things with actionable goals. Yeah, and they've been successful. I think the people on the other sides of those fights will ad- will adjust their tactics too. So I guess, um, you know, I think of the stuff that, that um, just generates heat without light as yeah. being noise. Like, I don't worry about it too much apart from hoping that my friends don't get too emotionally injured by it because I think it can be injurious, but... Uh, and I try to find the, the fights that seem like they've got that like there's a point to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the really important question to ask is when the other side adjusts its tactics, what's next for us? Yeah, that's the that's the stuff that I'm really interested in. Like I think I like the idea, for example, um, in the UK where I live, like here, the the seats are very gerrymandered. The political seats are very gerrymandered, and the three major parties have really converged on a set of policies that I think are very bad. Um, and there are other parties that I like that are fairly minority uh, in their in their support, and their biggest problem is the party problem that third parties have here, which is that anyone who votes for them believes that they're throwing away their vote. Yeah. And so I came up with a tactic for dealing with this, which is that um, if you're knocking on doors for a third party or in the UK fourth party candidate, um, rather than saying I want you to vote for me, you say I want you to publicly declare that you would vote for me if enough mm-hmm. of your neighbors did. And I'm going to, like right here, right now, using this tablet, we're going to put it on the web. We're going to, I, the next person whose door I knock on, I'm going to tell them that you signed up and tell them how many people have signed up and how many signups we need. Because it's actually a fairly small number because the voter turnout is so low. Um, and on the day, we are going to email and text all of you to tell you what our numbers look like and tell you, you so you can decide whether it's worth casting your vote for the minority party instead of holding your nose and voting for one of the major parties who you think is the least worst. So you can decide whether it's worth voting for the best yeah. or the least worst. And then every time a vote comes in for us, someone registers as having gone to the polling place and voted, we're going to text everyone who hasn't and let them know that another person has voted. So we're going to kind of try and build that out. So build in a kind of alternative uh, voting mechanism like a, a preferential rank ballot that's backformed on top of uh, the, the first-past-the-post system, which really just produces these terrible outcomes where you have spiraling voter turnout and uh, um, electors who are like way less responsive to the polity because the, the gerrymandering just produces this thing where the, the you know the, the the voters don't really matter mm-hmm. to anyone's political future. Funders do, but voters don't. Yeah. Um, and that's a way that I think that like we could actually win a couple of seats in the next election. And that, as a way of using Twitter and other other social media and online organizing tools to organize. Uh, grassroots movements that make genuine political differences is huge for me and I think that the thing to consider about it is what the party machines will do in response to it and not just in terms of um, 
how we counter the party machine next time, but also how people who believe in a more responsive government but have loyalty to their parties can go to their party's next conference and say, um, the only way we can, our most effective way of fighting this is being more responsive. So how we can support more responsive representation from mainstream parties in those seats that will never win through this, uh, so that we have a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom. You know, so that kind of that kind of collective action through social media is the stuff I'm really interested in. Yeah, that that is its core. I mean, what, the key there is, I think, what makes something like Comic Con so successful is this idea that there are um, this notion that 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 everybody wants to be in, in individualistic. They want to be their own person, but everybody's really just kind of looking for their own group of freaks, right? I mean, everybody sure. is looking... It, everybody needs that reassurance that there are other people that, that that think like them. And that's what's really powerful about this idea is if you can get enough of those people together, yeah, they can affect change. it's not change. the love that dare not speak its name anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, Dave Moss from EFF buttonholed me at San Diego Comic-Con not last summer, the summer before, and asked me to talk about privacy in Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I talked about the fact that in the there was a time when being publicly outed as a comic book fan would have like potentially damaged your career and certainly damaged your standing in the lights of your friends. Yeah. And it was because we were allowed to have private things, not necessarily secret things, but private things, because we were allowed to choose who we disclosed, which facets of our identity to whom, that we were able to actually um, find uh, this, this great outpouring yeah. of creativity and also commerce, and also uh, um, art, you know, that all these things were tied together. I see my minder here. Uh, Gina, am I done, or? Five minutes, okay. all right. Um, yeah, that, that's, that, that's something I keep coming back to with, 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 with something like this, and, and I think it's a little bit, a little bit the sort of like punk rock mentality in me, a little bit of, of you know, wanting to, 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 to have this thing that I like be, be my own thing, but it, but, but I do, I do have my misgivings, and I, I do, um, I go back and forth on whether this becoming popular culture is necessarily a good thing. Well, I think that you're probably conflating two different anxieties without putting words in your mouth. <laughs> no, I mean, one is, I'll, one I've been known pop- to do that. But one is popularity, and the other one is co- uh, commodification. Yeah. Right. Uh, and the two definitely go hand in hand. Yeah. Things that are popular are more apt to be commodified. You know, the hot topic effect. Right. Um, and Bohemia's places where, where the norms are challenged are really important for the same reason genetic diversity is important. Mm-hmm. And um, when the fitness factor that selects for a Bohemia's success is its, commodif- is its commodifiability, we just less, have less diversity in our culture, yeah. right, overall. That everything, all the, every, the, the full envelope that constrains the possibility of what counterculture can look like is uh, is its boundary condition is commodifiability, and so that's um, that's actually uh, uh, a problem, right? It it really does uh, undermine what the things that make Bohemia is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the the person I think is best at talking about this is William Gibson, and I, I've uh, you know we've written about this together, and I've interviewed him about this on stage before, and we've talked about it a lot. And this is one of his real concerns. You know, he says that, um, uh, like, punk took, like, a year to go from, you know, the, the streets to yeah. the mall. Um, but grunge took six months. 
and today's stuff is just born in the mall. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's the, this is a, a mall that we're in, um, which is interesting because although regional science fiction conventions, which is kind of the ancestor of this, the, the kind of Australopithecine version of this, always had dealer's rooms with, with booksellers and people who'd written fanfic and people selling scripts, uh, it's not, it, the emphasis on commerce is not like it is here. There, there is something, I mean, uh, you know, and this is, maybe this is one of the things that's going to keep tangible objects around a, a little bit is mm-hmm. there's, uh, I, I, I hate to make this statement, especially in, in a comic convention where, where so much emphasis is put on limited editions and, yeah. and first printings and, and things like that. And that's, it's a very, that's a very commodified concept where there are companies like sure. producing it for that purpose. But yeah, yeah the, an edition limited to exactly the number we, th- we think we can sell. Yeah, but, 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 you know, maybe, maybe there is something to be said for, um, you know, for, for the, I mean, you know, you're, you're with Boing Boing, you're from, which really has its roots in printed, printed scene yeah. culture in, in something as a limited object. And uh, maybe that's what will keep prints around is, is, something that that there's just a finite number of yeah yeah i mean or at least something that has a penumbra of virtue or association around it you know the idea that it's um it's beautiful the idea that it has been handled by yeah. by someone whom you love the idea that it it arose in some out of some very specific context that it was not just a limited edition but a limited edition that was sold only in one place in which something significant happened you know, um, the story of the Mouse Liberation Front, the, the Air Pirates Funnies. Oh, yeah. At an early Comic-Con after... after um, they, they did the, they sued, the Disney... After, yeah, after Disney, Disney successfully yeah. sued them for reproducing it. Uh, and the court said, well, it's because it was... Because these fair uses of Mickey Mouse were then mass-produced on a press that it was, um, that it was uh, an infringement. And so they organized at the next Comic-Con that all of the artists there just drew par- par- parodies of Mickey Mouse... And there were tens of thousands of them produced. And each one of those has value that is, like, sentimental and historical and kind of has lots of, like, as a physical object and as a memento, partly because of its, like, legal history and its ethical place and in, 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 in artistic expression and all of those things. There you have it. Cory Doctorow. Uh, I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. You, th- you know, you think it would be easy with the, the, the Boing Boing connection, but we are we are very, very rarely in the same time zone. He happened to be in town for New York Comic Con promoting a, a new book that just came out on first second. So I'm glad we finally got to got him to sit down in front of the microphone, if only for 40 minutes. Kind of I feel like we just had enough time to start scratching the surface on a few things, but I uh, tried to cram as much information into that conversation as possible. Uh, if you you want to know more about Corey, you can... Uh, Boing Boing is, a, is probably as good a place to start as any. Uh, Crap Pound is the name of his website. Uh, as I mentioned, he's got uh, a new book out on First Second, which is why he was uh, he was in town for New York Comic Con. That one's called In Real Life. It's a, a graphic novel about uh, gold farming. Why a graphic novel done with artist Jen Wang. Um, another book, he's got two new books out right now. As far as I know, he's got two new books out, knowing that he Probably had four or five come out since we conducted that interview. Uh, the other one is called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Uh, beautiful, beautiful book. You can find that on McSweeney's. Both of them very much worth uh, worth checking out. You can find out uh, everything you could want to know by checking out his website, Crap Hound. Um, 
Boing Boing is also a very good place to start as well. He's he's one of the main one of the main bloggers over at boingboing.net. So thank you so much to Corey for taking the time to do that. I, I, I can only imagine how busy his schedule is. Uh, thanks to Gina for a second for setting that up, and and Gabrielle from. Uh, from McSweeney's for her part as well. Uh, thanks to Brian as always for editing the show together. Uh, thanks to everybody at Boing Boing, the Boing Boing Podcast Network, including Corey. You get, Corey, you get you get two thank yous at the end of this podcast. Uh, if you like this show, there are, are plenty of other shows you can check out uh, over at over at uh, iTunes. And while you're over at iTunes, you should take the uh, you know take the take the opportunity to to rate the show. It'll be uh, do some do some good deeds for the new year. That'll be your first good. You know what? Do that. Go to go to iTunes. Rate the show five stars, and you're pretty much off the hook for the rest of uh, 2015. We are only getting started, however, for 2015. I'm trying to say that you know we're not canceling the show because it's a new year. Uh, lots and lots of good shows lined up. You can follow us. It's uh, it's rylcast.tumblr.com is the first and best place to get all those episodes. If you have any feedback or anything else, our email address is the same, but that's at gmail. It's rylcast at gmail.com. We will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L. R.I.Y.L.